The OCD and Anxiety Podcast by Robert James Coaching. Hello and welcome to the OCD and Anxiety Podcast, where we explore how to have a more positive relationship with anxiety disorders, taking back control so that you can start living the life you choose and not the one chosen by your fears. Hello there and welcome to episode 326. Uh, we have a very good episode coming up today, so uh, I think you're really going to, to find it interesting and helpful. Um, now, if you are struggling with OCD or anxiety and you would like to get a free session with me, then you can get a free session with me. To get that, all you need to do is to head over to my website, uh, www.robertjamescoaching.com. Uh, there you can book in directly for that free session, or if you prefer, you can just send me a message and let me know about what you're struggling with. Um, in today's podcast then, um, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Dr. Karen uh, Curitan. Dr. Karen Curitan is a licensed naturopathic physician, acupuncturist, passionate neuroplasticity practitioner and co-curator of the Wired for Wellness program. Through her own journey with complex chronic illness, anxiety, depression and PTSD, as well as from treating hundreds of patients with complex chronic illness, she realized the profound impact that stress uh, physiology has on all aspects of health. By rewiring her brain and rebalancing her nervous system, she has been able to free herself from anxiety, depression, PTSD, and many physical symptoms and stress patterns. She has since helped many clients to do the same with diverse health issues, traumas, and self-sabotaging patterns. Dr. Curitan is now a firm believer that everyone with a chronic mental, emotional or physical health issue will benefit from neural retraining and in many cases it is critical to healing. I think as you will hear in the, uh, in the chat that we have today, Dr. Curitan is clearly very passionate about her work, um, you know, very, very um, uh, interested in what she's doing and helping people and making a positive difference in the world. So, I really hope that, that you find that helpful. Um, if you have any questions at all about anything that we speak about today, do please let me know. And if you want to find out more uh, about uh, Dr. Curitan, you can find uh, the links in, in the show notes to her website and social media and that kind of thing. So there we go, guys. Many thanks. And off we go. Hi, Dr. Curitan. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So to to start off with, could you just kind of tell us a, li um, a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah. So, you know, um, professionally, I'm a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist. That's what my licenses are in. But my um, practice took kind of a left turn at some point. I had been practicing for a while just using those naturopathic and acupuncture tools. And and treating really complex chronic illness cases, you know, like Lyme disease and mold illness and chronic viral infections and all these things. And um, 
I found that a significant percentage somewhere in the neighborhood of like 25% of those people were so um, dysregulated in terms of their nervous system state that they couldn't heal. Um, not completely. So some of them would, you know, get a lot better on the treatment plan, but they couldn't go off of it or they would regress, you know, um, some others just didn't seem to respond to any kind of treatments they tried. And then um, another group, you know, would get short-term relief and then all their symptoms would come back. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, was re I was like really wondering what am I missing here? Why am I not getting this group of people all the way well, like the, the rest of the people in my practice? And so I went down the rabbit hole of learning, you know, a lot about the autonomic nervous system and the limbic system in the brain that are responsible for what nervous system state we're in, i.e. fight or flight or freeze, which most people have heard of, or rest, digest, and heal. And so, you know, as I learned more and more and more, I realized, oh, Gosh, it makes complete sense, actually, that if somebody is chronically in fight, flight, or freeze, you know, that they're not going to be able to heal completely because the autonomic nervous system controls all the major organ systems in the body. Mm. And so people are actually kind of doubtful when I tell them that, which is interesting because I feel like the research on stress and its contribution to illness has been really strong for a very long time. But when I actually talk about the physiology of it with people, they're like, oh, this is a bigger deal than I realized. I just didn't really understand yeah. how and why stress was having that effect on my digestion or my bladder or whatever, you know? Yeah. So- yeah. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, as I learned more, I just decided, you know, this is really important stuff and not enough doctors are paying attention to it. And so I wanted to be a part of the change that I think the medical paradigm needs. So I was like, I'm just going to do this and I'm going to bring credibility to it by being a doctor because this stuff is amazing. When I really started using it on myself and in my patients, I mean, just unbelievable transformations occurred. And I was just like, wow, okay, we need more people doing this. Mm. And yeah, there are the people that are dysregulated all the time, like my super sick patients um, often are. But then there are people who, you know, like 50% of the time, I would say probably the majority of people today are dysregulated lots more than they should be, right? Mm. I mean, evolutionarily, you know, it's estimated that we were meant to spend 90% of the time in rest, digest, and heal. And I don't think hardly anyone on the planet is doing that these days. Absolutely not. <laughs> no, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, it's uh, we're living in a very stressful time and uh, increasingly so, unfortunately, at, at the moment. Yeah. Hopefully things yeah. might turn a corner in the future. Um, yeah. But in the meantime, we need to have strategies and things to help us with this. So it's very interesting that you're investigating this area and working in it. Um, mm -hmm. Okay. And so do you feel that then there's uh, a kind of a trauma element to, to this, to so many people being dysregulated? Or is it generally about stress? Like, how would you kind of unpick that a little bit? <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, the reason people get into this in the first place is largely due to their experiences. Um, however, 
those experiences don't have to be big traumas, hmm. right? A lot of people think like, oh, you know, uh, I, I would have to have been raped or been in war or something like that for me to be able to claim that this have impacted my nervous system long term. And that's absolutely not the case. Lots of smaller, difficult, painful, stressful experiences um, imprint on the brain in the same way. And so they basically, you know, make an imprint that says, hey, this context or this circumstance is dangerous, right? So any experience you have had where you felt any spectrum of negative emotion and it was intense, that is something your brain is going to tag as a dangerous context. Hmm. And the reason is because you, your, your emotional states are directly linked to your nervous system states, right? Hmm. So most people know, oh, if I'm in fight, I'm probably going to be angry or irritable or annoyed or something like that. Those two things are intricately linked. So if you are annoyed, angry, you know, resentful, et cetera, then, you know, to some degree you're spending time in, in fight hmm. and the same for flight, you know, flight usually results in anxiety and fear and worry and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. And then freeze is more like depression and lethargy, lack of motivation, sometimes dissociation from, you know, body. So those kinds of things, um, you know, are good indicators that somebody could use, uh, this work. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, and you, you mentioned to me that uh, you you have had your own experiences with with anxiety. Um, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so I'll tell it in the context of my whole story because I think my story will speak to many, many people because I had a lot of problems for a while. So, you know, when I was about 19, I got very sick very quickly, didn't really know what was going on, where it came from, why it happened. And it took a very, very long time to figure out all those re reasons why, you know, I, my health went into the toilet and it was, it was pretty severe. I was, you know, really having a hard time thinking straight, making it to classes was, you know, unable to get out of bed sometimes. And, um, so it was intense and I, uh, went to see conventional doctors and they were like, Oh, we can't find anything on the lab. So you're probably just stressed. Go see a psychiatrist and get some anxiety medication. And I was like, uh, no, my hair's falling out and I've lost two thirds of my muscle mass. What is going on? Hmm. And so, um, they were just like, Oh, we don't know. So eventually somebody was like, Hey, you know, there's a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist in town maybe go consult with them. And I did. It was phenomenal. It was the first person that really like heard me. Mm. And, you know, the appointment was an hour and a half long, which is unprecedented, you know, in conventional medicine, nobody does that. So, you know, she really was able to actually analyze my case and was like, oh yeah, you know, I've got some ideas about what's going on here. You're going to be okay. You know, don't despair, which is exactly where I had been <laughs> before <laughs> that. And so- yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that came along with that journey was anxiety and depression. Mm. And I think part of that was situational because what I was going through was so un abnormal for a 19 year old. And I felt so alone and isolated yeah. and yeah. scared about my future. Right. But yeah. some of it was <clears throat> physiological logical as well, which I didn't know at the time, but it was because I was having things like mold exposures and 
uh, antibiotic toxicity and all kinds of other things were happening as well. And I was extremely stressed. Like I was from the very beginning, uh, one of those kids that, you know, just wanted to excel at everything. Right. So I worked really hard, you know, especially if I wasn't talented at something, I'd work even harder. And so when I was in college, I was like putting myself through a double major, working a part-time job, working in a lab and trying to maintain a long distance relationship. And it was totally insane. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it's not surprising then that my nervous system got confused about whether I was actually in danger in my life Yeah, because I was constantly under so much stress. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So then, you know, time went by, I got better with some of the naturopathic strategies, not all the way better, but enough better that Mm. I could do some things in my life again. So I went back to medical school at that point. And, you know, I was like, yay, I'm going to be a part of the change that needs to happen. Naturopathic medicine is going to cure me. And then I'm going to cure everybody else. And it was not quite like that. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, right. The journey is always windy, but, um, what ended up happening is I didn't actually learn in medical school, what I needed to heal. I learned it after medical school through continuing education, which is where, you know, all the cutting edge stuff is talked about. It's not talked about in medical school. So that's where I learned about mold illness and fluoroquinolone toxicity and these other things that I had uh, dealt with. And so I did use some naturopathic medicine to deal with some of those, those things, but I also around the very same time discovered uh, this concept of limit system retraining, which mm. is all about teaching the part of the brain that's responsible for your emotional responses and whether or not you are safe or feel safe, that part of the brain gets confused mm. based on our life experiences, you know, trauma, chronic stress, and even our own internal patterning can fuel this dysregulation, right? So being an overachiever is one of those things, being a perfectionist, a people pleaser, Mm. like highly sensitive or overly empathic, you Mm. know, all those kinds of patterns are actually stress patterns, Mm. right? So, you know, if you think about it, what is motivating you to do that behavior is this internal sense of, oh no, something bad is going to happen if I don't do that. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's threat to your brain. Right. So if you're running something like that all day, every day, then of course you're going to be dysregulated. And so that's how it was for me. So I ended up using these same tools that I use now to help myself heal. And it, these tools of neural retraining resolved over a decade of anxiety, chronic anxiety. Mm. Uh, resolve the vast majority of my in very intense social anxiety and performance anxiety, um, which were so severe that I would just shake and sweat and have hot flashes continuously if I tried to like speak in front of people. Mm. So, yeah. and and it's it's obviously different now. So, um, I also was having uh, panic attacks occasionally. And I haven't had any of those since doing this work, the depression totally resolved and my trauma. So to speak a little bit more about trauma, you know, trauma uh, uh, can very easily actually be rewired in the brain. And this is a pretty recent development. I would say in the past decade, you know, we've these 
approaches have been growing, mm. but most doctors and therapists are still not aware of them. Yeah. So that is the problem is that people go to therapists and they think they have the most up-to-date tools and they actually really don't just like doctors, unless they are, you know, continuously pursuing continuing education, they're mm. not going to learn the cutting edge stuff. Yeah. So yeah. So with these tools, I was able to resolve my traumas, big and little, so that they no longer impact me today. And I mean that in two ways, right? Because our traumas do impact us in multiple ways. One is that if we think about the trauma or we relive it inside ourselves, you know, we can have the trauma reaction we had at that time replay itself inside ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes it feel like we're back there again when we're obviously not mm. right but that's how that's one of the ways trauma can torment us going forward um the other way is that it will show up in your life right so you know as an example if you were uh in a really horrific car accident and you know it was scary and you were injured and things like that after that you are likely to feel anxious in mm -hmm. the car yeah right um, and that is your brain trying to protect you from something that it tagged as a threat, right? Mm, yeah. But, you know, that obviously doesn't lead down a good road, right? I've got so many clients at this point who I've helped with driving anxiety. It's out of control. A lot of these people completely stopped driving or mm -hmm. stopped driving on the highway and it was crippling to their lifestyle. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so when you resolve those past traumas, then you don't have it replay inside yourself in circumstances like that, right? Where your brain is recognizing, oh, this reminds me of that thing in your past. So we're going to turn on your survival response so that you stay safe, right? That stops happening. So you can get in a car again and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to drive to the store like I used to. And that is quite amazing in the psychology world. Yeah, it's uh, it's impressive stuff. Um, I, uh, I I've read some of the work by uh, Peter Peter Levine, who mm -hmm. uh, who works with trauma, and um, it sounds like there might be some crossover there between kind of what you're talking about uh, and and some of his work. Um, but you you mentioned uh, that you what you're doing is you're you're going into the limbic system, no, and you're you're trying to to rewire um the patterns and the behaviors in in the limbic system can you tell yes. me more about that then and how how that works and and how you do that yeah. to, to help with anxiety and phobias and panic yeah. panic and all these all these things that you've been talking about yeah so <clears throat> so the limbic system stores emotional and survival related information from your experiences, right? So if you want to really change what's the, the default pattern of firing in your limbic system, you have to teach it new things, right? And if you've got a lot of trauma in your past or really challenging experiences or an intense period of chronic stress, you know, those kinds of things, ideally, we also delete from the neural network. So how do we do that? Well, in the approach that I use, the primary approach is using the process called memory reconsolidation. Mm -hmm. 
So memory reconsolidation is a um, research term and a psychology term um, that basically refers to the reality that when we recall a memory, it naturally changes a little bit every time we recall it. Mm, yeah. And what changes it is our present moment context, mm, okay. right? So, so if you, <clears throat> you know, recall something in a really happy state, right? You're just feeling really, really good. And you think about this thing that happened in the past, your feeling state from the present, a little bit of that is going to get added to the neural network for that memory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's and a so it's a thing and it's, yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's evolutionarily very advantageous because it allows us to update our learnings as we mm -hmm. age, right? Yeah. And have more experiences. Yeah. But um, what psychology has not known until recently is how to hack that system in order to make the changes you want to make in the brain. And historically, psychology has been trying to do that through thought right through cognition through your conscious mind but mm. that data that emotional and survival data is actually stored in your subconscious mind yeah which is way more powerful than your conscious mind and your conscious mind has very little control over changing what's in your subconscious yeah it's so interesting you know ocd really is is about people now kind of getting caught up in this idea of if I just think about it one more time, for example, then I can yes. solve it, then I can get to the bottom of it, and then I'll be okay. And yes. of course, they never do. And, and it's so easy to get stuck in that cycle. Um, it is. You know, and really the effective behaviors, uh, sorry, the uh, effective strategies for, for managing OCD are the ones that you know, encourage people to let go of that and actually come more into their body, focus on behavior rather yeah. than uh, more thinking cognitive strategies. So yeah, exactly. it's very interesting like, that this is that kind of approach that you're describing. Yeah. So, you know, the real key to making changes in the emotional brain is shifting states emotionally. Hmm. Right. Which means that you're shifting states in the nervous system. So the way you utilize memory reconsolidation to make change purposefully is you have somebody bring it up inside themselves or you can do this when they're they're already in a situation where it's active so like the person who was in a car accident they are sitting in a car right now not driving and they're having a panic attack right so in that instance you know the neural network for driving for them is active yeah. and that means it can be changed until you open the neural network, you can't change it. It's kind of like how you have to open a Word document to edit it, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so that's the case um, with neural networks as well is to add new data or delete data. You've got to open it first. Once you've opened it, then you can send the data to that neural network that you want it to store. So let's say, you know, going forward, what you would rather feel when you're in a car is calm and happy. Yeah. Right. So in that moment, when somebody's experiencing the car anxiety, we would then get them to do something totally different that legitimately makes them feel calm and happy, not yeah. thinking about feeling calm and happy, but feeling it. Absolutely. And if they yeah. if they don't achieve that, then they don't really make the emotional change in the brain. So yeah. that's that's the key. And that's why traditional psychology 
is not as successful in being able to do that because the cognitive techniques that they're utilizing are less effective at creating state change. Yeah, that's fascinating. Really interesting. Um, okay. And so, for example, if somebody is uh, struggling with driving because of uh, this association that they've created in their mind with, with it, um, yeah. what what kind of behavior might you get them to do so so they would actually be in the car maybe they just go into their driveway and sit in the car Mm -hmm. it might be as simple as that and then they would maybe call somebody and tell a joke or something something like that I mean (laughs) what kind of things might you ask them to do yeah (laughs) in terms of like the the safety signals that they might send you can send those in so many different ways, which I think is actually one of the reasons this approach is so powerful yeah. is because everybody feels safe or different emotions for different reasons, right? In different circumstances. For one person, grandma's house when she was a kid was magical and felt incredibly safe and wonderful. And for somebody else, that was a place of trauma, yeah. right? And so yeah. we use what works for that person. So if for them, fart jokes are like, hysterical, that would be a great thing to use, right? Humor is the strongest safety signal you can send. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is why I think we're all drawn to humor, you know? Um, But you could use, you know, people's favorite songs. You can use like um, their favorite memories or their favorite places in nature. You can use body sensations that feel good to them. Um, yeah. And that actually is really key for many of these dysregulated people. So, you know, when we are struggling with anxiety, panic, or phobia, part of the issue for many of us is that we are afraid of the sensations of the anxiety, panic, or phobia, right? We are, the sensations can get so intense that we then transfer that fear from whatever the trigger was to the sensations. And then that is what causes things to blow up because once right. the brain tags the sensation as a threat, you know, it, it just, it just multiplies. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. Is there a danger of, um, you know, going back into a situation that is difficult for that person um, yes. of, of kind of re-traumatizing or, or, or that kind of thing. No, I guess it must be, you, you must be very careful in how you, in how you do it. Yeah. So luckily there are ways to do this that, you know, we can use with even the biggest traumas and we can do it without somebody flooding. If anybody knows that term, it's kind of, you know, when you get flooded with adrenaline or something, you know, you just get so overwhelmed by your emotional state and reaction, mm. you know, that it, you just can't really even think straight. You kind of dissociate those kinds of things. So we avoid that categorically um, because it's not helpful. It, it sends people backwards. Like you're saying, re-traumatizes mm. them. So in the case of big traumas or big phobias, we actually start as far back as we need to, for somebody to remain comfortable. So that means that, you know, if, somebody is working on a car phobia and they start to panic just by thinking about being in a car, Yeah, you know, then, then we would start all the way that far back or even farther back. Right. Yeah. So, um, and then we would rewire that layer yeah, and get them to the place where they can think about a car and feel totally relaxed 
before we move them to the next phase where they yeah. rewire the next layer and then the next layer until they can, you know, get into the car, turn it on, drive down the street and drive down the highway. Right. So if you do this process incrementally, yeah, it, it actually works a lot better because you don't re-traumatize and therefore reinforce to the brain how unsafe yeah. that is. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and in terms of actually, you know, um, th this process, I mean, fortunately, no, we have neuroplasticity, which is, you know, really how we're able to do a lot of these things and the brain is able to, to change itself. Could you tell us a bit more then about, about, about that, the, the actual rewiring that's, that's taking, that's taking place here, which is so important uh, I guess for the long-term improvements that you're that you're seeing in your clients. Yes, that is essential um, to people getting the results that we get, which is that unlike um, relaxation techniques, which produce a temporary results of making you feel calmer, when you actually change the neural connections in your limbic system so that neurons fire down different pathways then you get to that place where you have a new default, right? So whereas you used to feel anxious all day long, now you feel calm all day long, mm. you know? And that is my lived reality now. And it's kind of unbelievable after how long I was dealing with anxiety and depression and trauma. So yeah, it doesn't matter how long it's been going on. A lot of people are afraid. They're like, oh, well, I've heard that, old brains don't change as well as young brains. So I, you know, there's no hope for me. And that's 100% categorically not the case. Mm. You know, I have worked with people 75 and 80 years old who have been anxious their entire lives and they're not now. So it's amazing. And that, but yes, to create those changes, you have to actually change the wiring in the brain. And in order to do that, you have to get some reps in. Right. Similar to how, you know, you go to the gym uh, consistently if you want to get strong, if you want to build a new neural network to take over what an old neural network used to do, you've got to do some reps. You've got to make it stronger. And in order to make it stronger, you have to practice whatever you're creating there. Right. And so that's another piece of it is that while we can use memory reconsolidation to really change what has been held there before, then what happens after that is people need to grow a new habit or grow a new, I like to think of the whole thing like a tree. So it's like they're growing, planting a new tree for whatever they want to have happen. And that um, does require repetition. So oftentimes the way we're having clients do it is very quick repetitions in yeah. a process or in a session so that they're making rapid changes. Cause otherwise if they like repeat it once a week, it's going to take quite a while to get that neural network super strong. Yeah. So that's how we do it. And that's how people can make very, very fast changes. Like I've had people sometimes, you know, recover from their anxiety and trauma and all their physical health conditions in a month. But even from that place, they then have to continue to reinforce all the changes they've made for mm. a period of time. And that's more in the neighborhood of like six months for the average sick person um, who's been sick and dysregulated for a while. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. <clears throat> um, 
And when it comes to, I mean, would you mind giving some kind of specific examples um, for maybe, for example, panic? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if somebody is is who's listening is really struggling with panic, maybe, um, you know, the certain social situations that brings it on or um, how would they go about? I mean, obviously, they could get in touch with you and do some work with you, but mm-hmm. <laughs> how could they go about uh, starting this process, you know, um, mm-hmm. at home, maybe? And what would they need mm-hmm. to be doing? Yeah. So, you know, I think that. Um, with panic attacks, like usually, well, it depends. So panic attacks, what I've found is you kind of got two categories for them. You got the people for whom there's a very obvious trigger that always causes the panic attacks, right? Which is more along the lines of sort of a phobia, right? So they, like, as an example, I had this woman who used to have panic attacks every time she went into Costco, And nothing bad had happened in Costco. She actually didn't know why she had panic attacks in Costco, but it was very consistent. Mm. And so she'd started to avoid Costco. So in, you know, my discovery call with her, where I was just getting to know her, I was like, oh, well, let's just do a quick little process and see if we can get that down to a zero so you can see how this works. And so I did a little demo for her and, you know, she did the process of imagining going to Costco, you know, and that luckily only took her up to like an eight. So then we were able to work from that place. And in about five minutes, we got her to the place where she could just imagine going to Costco and be totally fine. But then what she, what I had her do for homework was I said, okay, I want you to, you know, uh, when you go to Costco this weekend, I want you to sit in your car do one of those things that I taught you to that actually makes you feel really, really good and really, really safe. Make those feelings as strong as you can before you go into Costco. Mm. Right. And your job is to try to carry them into Costco as long as you can, you know, and if you start to panic, just leave the store, go back to your car, do it again. She didn't panic. She hasn't panicked in a crowded place since. So Mm. that was, that was a really cool story where, you know, trigger specific things sometimes it can be really really fast and the other category is people who have random panic attacks right they don't know what's triggering them it's like they're just sitting there watching tv and they start to have a panic attack so um with those kinds of things usually what we're recommending people do is they start from they start using these neural retraining tools when they're not having a panic attack Mm. right because If you are starting at a 15 out of 10, you're so dysregulated, it's harder to get yourself all the way down to a zero, which is what you need to do to teach your brain you're actually safe in the context that that you're in. Hmm. So we have people do that outside the context first. So they'll just remember what it was like to have a panic attack before, right? And they will feel some anxiety from that, right? And that'll be the layer that we start with rewiring. And once they can remember their prior panic attacks and nothing happens in their body, nothing happens emotionally for them, then we know we're ready to move on to the next layer where, you know, they can start doing that, you know, in panic attacks if they are even still having them. But oftentimes rewiring the memories and the beliefs, um, and getting them to a place where they can remain calm, even while they remember what sensations of panic feel like, mm. then the panic attacks stop. 
Yeah. And so yeah. we've had a lot of people do that in, you know, a couple weeks to a month, stop yeah. panic attacks like that. Fantastic. And do, and do people find that hard when they're, when they're trying to maybe use their imagination to, to remember those difficult events and, uh, and how do you support them through that process? Yeah. So if, you know, those events in the past would trigger somebody to, you know, nine or 10 on the scale of 10 or above, then they should be doing that with a practitioner. Yeah. Um, the reason being, again, we don't want you to treat re-traumatize yourself. So I would say our, what we're finding is the members of our group program who have access to neural retraining guided processes they can use anytime. Mm. They are doing phenomenal with rewiring past events and traumas that take them up to about a seven. Yeah. And, or eight. Um, and then we're recommending that if they have things that are nine or 10, they do it with a practitioner. Yeah. So when you're doing it with a practitioner, you know, you're going to be much more successful with those intense things because practitioners can tell, like I can tell just from looking at your face, if you're dissociating or and you're panicking, right? If something going on with you that you are is can't handle, right? I can see that on your face and I can pull you out of it almost immediately. Right. So that it doesn't escalate. Mm. Right. And that's the issue with, I think, uh, talk therapy oftentimes is that, um, they're not successfully pulling people out when, when they're getting really triggered. And so they, it just gets bigger and bigger, unfortunately, the emotional reaction, because they just yeah. keep talking about it and focusing on it. <laughs> well, it can be quite the opposite. No, it's, uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, if you if you only had one piece of advice for people who might be struggling with OCD and anxiety, panic, all of these kinds of things, and I know it's a hard question, but if you only had one piece of advice, what would that piece of, of advice be? Yeah, I guess I would just say that, you know, in the vast majority of cases, you know, anxiety and panic attacks are not from something going on with your body, like, you know, an infection or, you know, something else can, there are things like that, that can trigger anxiety and panic, but the vast majority of the time, probably like 95% of the time it's learned unintentionally learned from your past experiences. And so it can be unlearned because the brain is plastic. So you don't have to live with that for the rest of your life. You don't have to be crippled by it. You know, actually getting out of anxiety and panic can be a pretty quick process and pretty painless. These tools that we use are actually pretty enjoyable. Like we hear from our members all the time. They're like, I had no idea that doing psychological work could be so pleasant. <laughs> well that's uh that's some good feedback no <laughs> yeah so there's no yeah, reason great. to be intimidated either it's not yeah. going to be painful yeah yeah no it's, it's very interesting because uh I, I think so often um we get caught up in in stories and narratives about ourselves yes. and um yes. you know even the diagnosis sometimes can be part of that um you know OCD itself just that word disorder at the end yeah. I mean it obviously is very important and useful uh, to have that diagnosis so that you can get the right support but at the same yeah. time um, it's recognizing that you know if we're not careful that that kind of story or that narrative behind that word disorder can actually hold us back and 
you know mm-hmm. I, I prefer to to view these things more from the perspective that you were just kind of talking about where you know can we just recognize that these are behaviors that we've picked up over time and um, perhaps mm-hmm. at some point in our lives they were actually serving us in some way um, right it's just that they're you know over time they're not anymore and they're most probably holding us back um but being able to see it from that perspective I think is really really healthy I agree 100% I think so many people out there are identifying with their diagnosis and unfortunately the field of psychology has not helped with that Hmm. in the sense that I feel like the field of psychology for a very long time because their tools were limited and not super effective honestly uh you know they would give people diagnosis like a life sentence, right? Yeah. They'd be like, oh, you're an anxious person. Yep, you're going to be anxious. And so like, no, that's that's not reality anymore. We don't need to identify with these diagnoses because these psychological diagnoses can be changed many times. Mm, fantastic. I mean, that's a really hopeful uh, message there to, to, to finish on. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been great talking to you. If um, if people want to find out more about you and, and get in touch, how can they do that? Yeah, so if they want to get in touch with me directly and consider working with me directly, then you can go to my website, which is drlikedrkarencuritan.com. My last name is hard to spell, so check the show notes because it'll be in there. <laughs> um, and then if you want to um, check out what is neural retraining and what is it like, like, What's the actual experience of it like? Um, I've co-created a free program for people to just get an experience of it. So you can find that at getwiredforwellness.com backslash free. And um, uh, there's also a freebie for specifically for people with anxiety, panic attacks, and phobias. Mm-hmm. And that's at getwiredforwellness.com backslash anxiety. So we hope that you enjoy those and um, you start getting results right away. And um, yeah, that's the whole purpose of it. So you re- you really can tell, wow, these things work. Fantastic. And yeah, all, all of those links will be in the show notes. So uh, thank you very awesome. much. It's been great talking to you. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Robert. It's been an awesome conversation. Just a quick reminder that if you want to get a free session, all you need to do to get that is to head over to my website, www.robertjamescoaching.com. And there you can leave me a message and we can arrange the uh, free session. And now just a quick reminder of my disclaimer. Any information that you view on my website, Instagram page, Facebook group, or anywhere else online, or any information that you listen to on the podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for actual medical or mental health advice from a doctor, psychologist, or any other medical or mental health professional. 